0: Hi. Hey. Welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Kay Albert Little, an evangelical, non-denominational convert to Catholicism. And this podcast is born out of one particular idea. It began when a pastor I was working for asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? As an evangelical in my early 20s, I thought the answer was easy. But as I began to dig into the formation of the scriptures, into how they were written and collected and preserved, as I began to study the history of Christianity, I encountered the ancient Catholic faith. It was then, as I began reading about the Catholic Church from actual Catholic sources, that I realized that what I thought I knew was wrong. My understanding was based on misinformation and, more often than not, simple misunderstandings. This podcast serves to fill in that gap, the gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. We have real Catholic conversations with real Catholic thinkers from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week's episode was really fun. I'm joined by Dr. John Bergsma, professor of theology at the Franciscan University of Steubenville, to talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Catholic Church. Dr. Bergsma is an absolute expert on the topic, and he unpacks for us some of the absolutely incredible insights that these ancient scrolls shed on our Catholic faith. And truly, it's some mind-blowing stuff. I think you'll love this interview. I think you'll learn a ton. I think you'll walk away with a brand new appreciation for the Jewishness of our Catholic faith and an incredible picture of the whole of God's plan for salvation history. You're going to love it. And two quick things. First of all, thank you to my patrons for supporting this podcast and for helping to keep this show going. Head over to patreon.com slash cordialcatholic if you want to support this show as well. And thank you so much to two new patrons. Thank you, Katie, and thank you, Kelly, for your support. I couldn't do it without you. And one more thing. These are strange, unusual, eerie times as Dr. Scott Hahn called it recently on a Facebook post he wrote. Very eerie times. That's a good way of putting it. But know this. Know that I'm praying for you. My Lenten fast was already for you guys, for your intentions, for this show and my listeners, and it's just been expanded and deepened. Know that these shows will keep rolling along as long as I can do them. I think it's important to fill in those gaps in your time and allow you to help deepen your understanding of the Catholic faith wherever you are listening, whenever you can listen. Do send me an email, cordialcatholic at gmail.com, to let me know how you are doing, how I can pray for you, how this show can support you during these difficult times as well. Know that you are daily in my prayers, and thank you for your prayers as well. Without any further ado, here's my fantastic interview with Dr. John Bergsma. Please listen and enjoy. Hey friends, and welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for joining us again this week. My guest this week is Dr. John Bergsma. Dr. Bergsma is a professor of theology at the Franciscan University of Steubenville in Steubenville, Ohio. He has degrees from Calvin Seminary, and served as a Protestant pastor before entering the Catholic Church in 2001 while pursuing a Ph.D. in theology at the University of Notre Dame. Dr. Berksma is the author of a number of fantastic books, including Bible Basics for Catholics, Stunned by Scripture, How the Bible Made Be Catholic, and For Our Purposes Here Today, one of the best books I've read in recent memory— Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls, revealing the Jewish roots of Christianity. Dr. Bergsma, I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you for being here, and hello.
1: Great to be with you, Keith. I'm um, really looking forward to this.
0: You know, I, I said it just now, and I'll and I'll say it again. This book is is fantastic. I've actually loved this entire kind of little series. Uh, uh, Brant Petrie wrote a couple of books in this collection, I think, as well. And uh, I, I really couldn't wait. I, I ordered this book on on an uh, Amazon. But I couldn't wait for it to come in, so I actually downloaded the audiobook in the meantime, <laughs> and uh, and uh, I think it's about, I'm trying to think now, about eight hours or so uh, as an audiobook, I think, if I'm remembering that correctly, however long it is. I essentially listened to it in a week on my commute sure. and doing the dishes. I couldn't turn it off. I mean, you really get <laughs> enthralled in this, and I, maybe it's just me, I, I, I love this typology. I love the the connections between the Old Testament to the New Testament, but I couldn't get enough of this book. Uh, I devoured it, you know, as fast as I could, an audiobook, and it came It came in print eventually, but I already finished the whole thing really quickly in the audiobook format. So, congratulations, kudos on a fantastic book uh, you've written here.
1: Thanks, Keith. I uh, appreciate that. I, I do find the subject fascinating myself, and uh um, you know, we'll sometimes pick up the book and page through and kind of get engrossed and they're like, Oh wait, I, I read, I wrote this, <laughs> but, uh, um, but, uh, uh, the other thing is, um, you know, we both have, uh, families. I, I've got, um, eight kids and, um, I wrote, I wrote the book usually between about 4am and 6am in the morning. And, um, I, I don't remember everything I wrote <laughs> all the time <laughs> because, It was kind of blurry, you know, when I was uh, uh, staying awake on on coffee uh, in the writing of some of these chapters. So when I when I page back through it, um, you know, later uh, sometimes it's uh, it's uh, fresh and new again, which is uh, (laughs) also the benefit of growing older and having a you know faultier memory. But anyway, yeah, it's it's a great subject matter, and and um, you know, I, I think that folks will find it really interesting.
0: I think they should have got you to read the audiobook between 4 and 6 in the morning, uh, fueled by coffee. (laughs) That would have made it even more interesting as an audiobook. (laughs) I'm sure. (laughs) Okay, so I wonder if you can begin for our listeners by explaining what the Dead Sea Scrolls are and how how those, uh, maybe that might not know... Um, and then a little bit of the history of the of the Discovery, and the history of the community which created and collected and preserved these scrolls. Could you give us just a little brief overview of the Dead Sea Scrolls, just to begin? Sure.
1: So, the Dead Sea Scrolls are all that's left of the library of a Jewish monastery that flourished in the century before and the century during uh, Jesus' lifetime. That's the most succinct way to put it. Um, Basically, on the shores of the Dead Sea, uh, there was a monastery of 100 to 200 Jewish men, probably established maybe about 150 years before Jesus was born, uh, and it flourished all the way up until uh, the year 70 when uh, Jerusalem was destroyed and, uh, and their, their monastic uh, settlement was probably destroyed very close in time uh, to, uh, to Jerusalem and, and also by the Romans. So that's what they are, Keith. Um, and then um, uh, what, what are the contents? Well, the the library originally consisted of a thousand scrolls, and you know, let's just remember that in those ancient times, that was the usual way that you wrote a book—not on pages bound on one side like we do, but on, on a scroll format. So, they originally had uh, about a thousand books in in their um, communal library. And uh, they hid them in caves when they saw that the Romans were coming, uh, probably to attack them, and uh, they remained more or less undisturbed in the caves until around 1947, uh, the the winter of 1947, probably around January, probably, when a a, tri- a trio of... Arab Bedouin uh, goat herders were were driving their flocks down the shore of the Dead Sea, trying to get to an oasis, and one of these uh, cousins, uh, one of these uh, Arab cousins, tossed a rock into the mouth of a cave just to amuse himself and heard the shattering of pottery up there in the cave and that aroused their curiosity that maybe there's human artifacts maybe some gold or treasures up in that cave they took a note of the location came back a few days later and all they found were um were three scrolls in some old jars well they were pretty disappointed by that and and within a few months they sold them in Bethlehem to an antiquities dealer for about a modern equivalent of 100 bucks uh, and then over the course of a year to 18 months, uh, the original scrolls that were sold got moved around to different hands until finally they reached some scholars in, uh, in Jerusalem and in the U.S. who recognized that these were the uh, included some of the oldest copies of the Bible that uh, anybody had ever seen. One of the scrolls that they initially found, Uh, Keith turned out to be a copy of the book of Isaiah uh, in the original language, which is Hebrew, uh, dating from possibly the year 250 B.C., okay? So that was, again, a complete copy of Isaiah in Hebrew from 250 years before our Lord was born. And prior to that discovery, uh, the oldest uh, uh, complete copy of any Book of the Old Testament in the original language that we had was more from the year, say, 1,080. So with one discovery, we're leaping back in time, uh, you know, 1,200 years uh, in terms of, you know, the antiquity of, um, of the text of the Bible. So it was just amazing, just, you know, astounding, astounding find. Well uh well, once once western scholars uh realized that uh there were you know genuine ancient scrolls that these Bedouin had found in these caves uh that initiated about a decade of exploration from the late 40s into the late 50s where year after year scholars would go down to the shores of the dead sea and search for more sca- more uh caves and, and more scrolls and eventually as i said finding the remains of uh, what once were a thousand scrolls uh, scattered among 11 different caves uh, all around um, the remains of an ancient uh, complex of buildings that turned out to be, as as best we can see, uh, as I said, a, 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 essentially a Jewish monastery. Now, our listeners are probably thinking, a Jewish monastery, but Jews don't practice monasticism. Well, modern Jews don't, Keith, but... You know, as as you know from you know the the book and your other research and reading, I'm sure, there was one branch of Judaism which was wiped out in the year seventy, but up until that time was a rather you know important tradition among the Jews, a sect among the Jews. And they were called the Essenes, and we'll talk a lot about them, I'm sure, uh, on this uh, program. But uh, the Essenes were a sect. Uh, just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, although those other groups are better known because they 're mentioned frequently in the Gospels, uh, but the Essenes were the third of the major of the three major uh, branches of Judaism in the time of Jesus, and uh, alone among the different groups of Jews, this group, the Essenes, uh, they practiced monasticism and uh, other very uh, unusual um, for, at least for Jews, religious practices that, you know, as, as, we'll, as we will discuss, um, look very similar to practices that we later observe in the Christian faith. And that's what a lot of the book is about, is the connections between uh, these these amazing uh, ways that the, the Essenes practiced their religion and uh, ran their community and all the connections between that and uh, early Christianity, which I think is very illuminating. So, Uh, that is, uh, that wasn't even quite a nutshell. That was about four (laughs) nutshells there, but, uh, uh, sorry if I got a little long winded, but, um, yeah, that's, that's a little bit of an overview, uh, for, for our listeners. And, uh, yeah, let's, let's move on from there.
0: Well, that paints just a fantastic picture, and what you talk about, and and you mentioned this is kind of the bulk of the book, is just what kind of light uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls shed on our faith. Um, You talk about areas of baptism, and the Eucharist, and marriage, and celibacy, and the priesthood, and the church, and I'm sure I'm missing a category there as well. And uh, we can't go through all of these, obviously, in the time we have here, so we'll have to pick and choose. But I wonder if you can begin by talking about maybe in general, what would you say are some of the most powerful kind of insights about kind of the first century um, society, what's going on around the time of Jesus, um, that, that we get through the Dead Sea Scrolls that we didn't necessarily have before, maybe?
1: Sure. Um, I would say in general, Keith, what the scrolls show us is that um, there was a branch of Judaism uh, whose practices um, were strikingly similar to those of the early church. And when we look into that community, again, we, I just mentioned that they were the Essenes. When we, we examine their their religious beliefs, and uh, lifestyle, uh, we begin to see that a lot of what we read about our Lord and the apostles doing and saying in the Gospels and in the epistles, okay, makes a lot more sense given the, the background of this community. Um, you know, to, let's give two important examples. Okay, baptism and Eucharist, uh, for example. Um, when we read in John three, Keith, you know, where, where uh, Jesus is having this discussion with Nicodemus about the necessity to be born again of water and the Spirit, and our Lord gets a little bit frustrated with Nicodemus because he he can't understand what would what it could mean to be. Born again of water and spirit, you know how can a man enter a second time into his mother's womb, and so on, and uh, and and Jesus says, you know, you're a leader of of Israel, and you don't understand, you know these these concepts, you know, he he gets frustrated with with Nicodemus, and and when we read that, uh, Keith, you know, our tendency is to think, well, you know, Jesus, how can you get Upset with Nicodemus. I mean, why does that make sense? Obviously, Jesus, you're talking about baptism, Christian baptism, but there was was no such thing at this time, and so how could Nicodemus possibly follow the conversation? Well, actually, Keith, there was there was such a thing. There, we find you know in this Dead Sea Scrolls community, this this monastic Jewish community, they were daily practicing a water washing. That, um, that they believed communicated the Holy Spirit to them and and washed away their sins. So, and, and they, they were doing this because they believed that they were living in the last times, you know, the, the last uh, days, the last months, the last years before the arrival of the, of the Messiah and basically the, the culmination of human history. And this had been going on for up to a century before our Lord was even born, much less began His ministry. So, these ideas of like an end times water washing that would forgive your sins and communicate the Holy Spirit—these uh, ideas were circulating, you know, within Judaism at the at the time that uh, our Lord was um, was ministering and the the apostles were spreading the gospel and so on. So, this is really fascinating. And it it provides, you know, a plausible background for a lot of things that we look in the New Testament and think, well, these are just like novelties. These are just like total innovations by Jesus or total innovations by the apostles that really don't make sense, but, hey, you know, it's just the Holy Spirit leading them in some bizarre direction. And uh, it's really not like that. There's 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 a stronger movement of organic continuity from the Old Testament to the New Testament and the the dead sea scrolls are like a a missing link kind of like a stage in the development of a lot of these ideas that eventually you know come to come to fruition in the church and uh so yeah in brief you know that's that's what i'd say is you know the most one of the most powerful insights is that There was a form of Judaism that uh, was just ready for the kind of things, the kind of teachings that we get from Jesus and and St. Paul, even.
0: Yeah, and I find that so fascinating. I don't know if this was your experience at all when you were in in Protestant ministry or as a Protestant Mm Uh, it certainly was mine, though, and I've even seen it, you know, I, I can even think of a time when a pastor actually illustrated this on a blackboard, this idea that here's the Old Testament, here's this kind of giant gap between the Old Testament and New Testament where the prophets are silent and there's no kind of continuity, and here's the New Testament uh, when Jesus comes. And it was, it was seen quite, il- it was illustrated that way, quite graphically. It was seen as this break between... You know, and there was some continuity because Paul was certainly a Jew, uh, and and Jesus came from Jewish context, and so did his apostles. But it was seen as this kind of enormous break between here's the law and these rules and structures and and working for our salvation, and here's the new covenant under Jesus, which is totally just separate from this other thing. So w- when when Dead Sea Scrolls come comes along, uh, like this missing link, like you talk about, it it. it, it it makes that such a, a stronger connection that organic that organic kind of growth, like you said, right between those two those two different um, manifestations. Can we say of God's kind of of plan for humanity?
1: Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I had a similar training. You know, it was basically that we used to call it the 400 years of silence, and and then all of a sudden, you know, bolt from the blue. Here's John the Baptist for a few years, and then. Jesus pops on the, on the scene and drops all these new things, uh, you know, into la- into laps of God's people. And boy, uh, you know, if, if you can't figure it out real quick, sorry, you, uh, you missed the salvation train and, uh, and, uh, which is pulling out of the station. So yeah, it's, it, you know, I was like, like you train in this, um, kind of this, this big gap and in this, this big leap forward in, uh, salvation history with Jesus. And, uh, but of course you and I were persons of faith, um, you know, skeptical or or secular scholars, you know, look at that big gap and they say, ah, this, you know, this all doesn't make sense. Uh, Jesus and, uh, Paul and so on couldn't have just, you know, started announcing this stuff out of the blue uh, this must be later things that Christians came up with and then invented and wrote fictional stories about Jesus and Paul uh, speaking about this stuff, uh, you know, back in the first century. And that—that's one of the things that I attack in this book, uh, Keith. Is—is is this notion that any part, really, of the New Testament was some kind of later fiction that you know is written by second or third generation Christians, um, because the the Dead Sea Scrolls. You know, in so many places show us that no, the things that Jesus is recorded as saying during his lifetime make sense uh, during his lifetime, you know in in the in the context of the Judaism of his day, and the, and the things that St. Paul says in his letters also make sense uh, in that time, in that age, and, and oftentimes it's the Dead Sea Scrolls that help us to see that, yeah, there were discussions going on about the kind of topics that are raised in the Gospels and the Epistles, and it, it it does fit its historical context.
0: I want to talk about the Eucharist next, but first, I guess, like, what you're saying here, and this is fascinating to me, it fills in these gaps even for scholars who couldn't maybe find some things in the New Testament echoed in the Old, and they thought, well, where's this stuff coming from? But then it it makes so much sense in the context—it makes our Christian faith, our our Catholic Christian faith— makes so much more sense because it gives context to all these things. Jesus didn't just invent baptism out of nowhere or the Eucharist out of nowhere. It's a continuation of these things. And and then for me, I think I want to swing around to this at the end of the interview to talk about how this is a sen- so important to our, our Catholic Christian faith. But so many of these things that I wouldn't have understood as a Protestant Christian, say that Catholics do, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls fill in those gaps and make those things make even more sense, right? It's not that Catholics invented these things later down through yeah. the ages uh, as we began to establish our, our our strict rituals and rites and these things. Like the Dead Sea Scrolls, clearly uh, are the puzzle piece that fits in between. Uh, how no these things that that the first Christians were doing these very Catholic things they were doing came right from the Jewish tradition that they would have inherited right it's that it's that missing piece that makes yeah. the Catholic faith make so much sense
1: yeah specifically the Catholic faith because you know one of the things is is our what's what's called sacramental realism Keith you know that we believe that when we celebrate the sacraments, you know, God is actually acting through them. It's not merely symbolic. Now, that's a major distinction between most Protestantism, not all, but most, and the Catholic Church is the idea that, you know, the Holy Spirit is is actually doing something, okay, in baptism. Like, the Holy Spirit's actually, you know, bringing someone to spiritual life through that sacrament, and likewise, you know, in the Eucharist, that uh, you know, body, blood, soul, and divinity, Jesus is present there, um, and we are really receiving Him. Now, you know, Keith, coming from a very, a very symbolic uh, Protestant background, uh, when I first really started to seriously think about Catholic teaching, you know, the, this, this kind of again, realistic view of the sacraments that, you know, things are actually happening and uh, the Spirit is actually working in the sacraments. I thought, uh, this is all like medieval superstition. You know, that that all came from, you know, I don't know, the 11th century A.D., the Middle Ages, something like that. that certainly that wasn't the original belief of Christians. Now, we could talk about the Church Fathers and the way that they show that they'll actually that kind of sacramental realism is present all the way back to the earliest fathers. But what really surprised me, Keith was to find that with, with the, the Dead Sea Scrolls community um, there, this, this monastery, they had these sacred rituals, like a daily meal of bread and wine, uh, daily washing in the water. And they too really believed that, God was doing something in those rituals. See, they had what, what would look, you know, to all the world, to us, like sacramental realism. was not merely symbolic for them when they did these things. And that sheds a lot of light on the Gospels and the Epistles where Jesus or Paul or, you know, John the Apostle, you know, will say very uh, very concrete things like, baptism saves you, you know, or, or um, you know, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. You know, that the that, that very kind of tangible, realistic view of what's happening in these sacred acts. That's not later Christian tradition. That's not the Middle Ages. That's actually first century Judaism because they had that that view that, um, you know, th- this is how things were going to be when the Messiah appeared. So, yeah, that was a really, that's been a game changer in the way that, I I read the New Testament as a scholar and as a believer. (laughs)
0: That's definitely fascinating. So how about the Eucharist? You know, since the beginning of the Christian Church, the Eucharist, again, is one of those things that kind of marks Christianity. It's one of the indicators, those those uniquely Christian things. And, uh, you know, some of the early Church, uh, the first Persecutors of the early church, I should say, referred to Christians as cannibals because they thought that we were actually eating the flesh of other human beings. And Catholics, well, believe this to be true to a degree, and almost uniquely as Catholics, apart from other Christian groups, we believe that the bread and wine actually become, as we talked about, the the body and the blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. And I've had other guests on the show unpacking that ancient Christian belief um, but the Dead Sea Scrolls, as you explain in your book, provide an even deeper kind of picture into this and what's happening in the Eucharist and, and how deeply uh, rooted God's plan for the Eucharist goes into salvation history. So I wonder if we can talk about this for a bit. What are some insights that uh, we can gain from the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, about the Eucharist that we celebrate in the Catholic Church?
1: Sure. Um, you know, this is just a you know fascinating topic, um, you know, Keith, because this this branch of Judaism, uh, you know, the movement was called the Essenes, or the um, by outsiders, it was the name given to them. Um, and as I said, they they practiced monasticism, and you know had a, had this community on the shore of the Dead Sea that. We had a bunch of uh, men, you know, praying and working and worshiping together, doing the kind of things that monks do in in all religions. And um, you know, uh, Keith, the central idea here is they believed that they were already living the new covenant. You know, we we forget sometimes, I think, as as Catholics and as Christians, that. The idea of a new covenant is not something that Jesus invented. It was prophesied um, already in the 600s B.C. uh, by the prophet Jeremiah, and you can read about it in Jeremiah 31, uh, verses 31 through 34, a very famous prophecy uh, where Jeremiah says on behalf of God that one day there will be a new covenant that will essentially replace uh, the covenant that was given through Moses. And other prophets, like Ezekiel and Isaiah, yeah. uh, say similar things, although they'll use terms like covenant of peace or an eternal covenant. Well, this uh, this branch of Judaism called the Essenes, they, they believed that, um, that they had already formed that new covenant that had been prophesied by the prophets. And uh, they would meet daily, Keith, around noon to share a sacred meal together, uh, which consisted primarily of bread and wine. And that meal had to be presided over by a priest, uh, and then in a very clear ritual fashion, they would all ritually partake of the bread and then of the wine, and, uh, and they would begin and they would end this meal with uh, songs of thanksgiving. Okay, that they would that they would uh, sing to God, at thanksgiving for the salvation that God had had won for them, and that was their daily practice. And the ability to participate in that meal, that was the mark that you were, in, in their view, fully initiated into the new covenant, because they had this probation period that very similar to, to like a catechumenate. Uh, that That extended you know not several months but actually several years, you know up to three or four years, where people were gradually inducted into their community and and gradually allowed to participate in the meal first in the bread and then finally they were allowed to partake of the wine and Once they could take both the bread and the wine of this meal, then they were fully into uh, the new covenant and they believed Keith that this meal that they shared together that would continue. When the Messiah came, and when the Messiah came, they would share this meal with him, and that would mark uh really the culmination of human history, you know that Messiah had come to earth, and now they were you know celebrating the the banquet of the kingdom of God, you know with the Messiah. well, holy cow, you know you take that and this has been going on for a hundred years before the birth of Jesus, and you Against that context, you look into the Gospels and, you know, these parables about the wedding banquet of the kingdom of God, you know, that, that Jesus tells. All of those, you know, really start to to pop, um, as the saying is, uh, you know, against the background of these expectations. And then when we take that information and look at the accounts of the Last Supper, we see a lot of similarity there, too, and we realize that the the apostles, some of whom were involved in this Essene movement, they would have understood Jesus' actions at the Last Supper as the actions of the long-awaited Messiah who was coming to share this meal of bread and wine with the people of God, which would, you know, initiate the. Last stage of human history, and and mark the arrival of the new covenant. That and isn't that just what our Lord says in Luke twenty two twenty? He speaks over the cup and says, "This cup is the new covenant, uh, consisting of my blood." And um, you know, and so it, wow, you know, there there was this is. This was explicable in terms of where you know Judaism was going at the time of Jesus. They were expecting something like this, and and Jesus was answering these uh, expectations. So, uh, but and doing something more, you know, Jesus does something that the Essenes didn't see, which was give his own flesh as this meal. Now, in hindsight we can see that even that was foreshadowed in the prophets because Isaiah twice in, in Isaiah 42 and in Isaiah 49, Isaiah prophesized that in the, in the future time, God's servant will become the covenant. And that's like my blowing. What does that mean to become the covenant? But in light of, what Jesus does at the Last Supper, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which means consisting of my blood, we realize, oh my gosh, Jesus is giving himself, that is to say his own flesh and blood, he's giving himself as the new covenant, which is a family relationship, a solemnly sworn family relationship that Jesus is establishing, making first the apostles into the family of God, ultimately the church into the family of God. So, yeah, uh, you know, Keith, the, the, um, the Dead Sea Scrolls help us to understand the Eucharist as this long-awaited covenant meal, the covenant meal of the new covenant that the prophets had promised, uh, again, consisting of bread and wine, celebrated by the Messiah that marks this, this epochal shift in human history into a whole new arrangement between God and his people
0: I think the 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 first amazing thing for me I mean when I first became a Christian as an evangelical kind of in high school I was saved and began to practice my faith in a Pentecostal context originally and I can remember communion being this kind of abstract thing that uh, kind of bereft of any context, right? That Jesus established this meal, we're supposed to do this thing in remembrance of him. I had no idea of, of the Jewish context of that. And then I can remember learning about uh, the Jewish context of Passover and kind of the importance of the bread and the wine and how those kind of took on a bit of a new meaning in, in, in Jesus's celebration of the Last Supper. And so there was a second kind of layer for me added on to what the Last Supper was. And then becoming Catholic, of course, was another layer kind of added on to what all that meant. And you went from symbolic to, to very literal I, uh, thing happening here. And then the Dead Sea Scrolls, I, I think, added even further depth to that, right? Not only is this being celebrated, this meal that Jesus celebrates with the apostles in the context of like the Last Supper and of, or sorry, of Passover and in this Jewish context. But then if you layer on top of that the very real expectations that the Essenes were meeting and having these meals, just kind of waiting for the Messiah to come and then celebrate those with them, that adds even more depth to that Jewish context, in my opinion.
1: Oh, definitely. And, you know, we have a tendency as Americans to just read the Gospels at such a thin level, you know, and and because we don't understand the the background for the gestures, the words, uh, the terminology, you know, we read the accounts of Last Supper and we think, oh, this is just a, a dinner that Jesus is telling the apostles to have to think about him, you know, to remember him, you know, and so... We'll pass the wonder bread and little cups of grape juice, and we'll think about Jesus, you know. And that's such a that's such an anemic, uh, you know, understanding of what Jesus is doing. Um, the the actual accounts of the Last Supper, Keith, in in all the Gospels, but you know, especially in Luke, which he, who gives us the longest account, are 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 shot through with um, liturgical symbolism, temple symbolism, priesthood. Just to mention one example, Keith, it's fascinating in the Dead Sea Scrolls when they describe this meal of bread and wine that they celebrated daily uh, to renew you know, the new covenant that they believed that they had with God. A, a priest always had to be present, and the priest had to reach first to bless the bread and then had to reach first to bless the wine and nobody else was allowed, you know, to touch any element of the food until the priest had given blessing over the elements of the meal. And against that backdrop, we go back to the Gospels, we read what, what's going on there, and it's very clear. Jesus reaches first for the bread, blesses it, breaks it, distributes it, reaches first for the cup, passes it to the others. That's a priestly act. That is a, a sacred Act not something that not just anybody could do, you know. From a perspective of uh, Judaism, and so that that this was this was an act of formal worship. It wasn't just hey, we're sharing a hamburger, and I want you to remember me, you know, every time you eat a hamburger, something like that. Was it was it kind of some casual um, you know social event? Again, it was a solemn act of worship following a pattern. Uh, following a, a certain like, customary established procedure, and, uh, and again, Keith, we miss that. We miss that, and, and and because we miss that as modern Christians, we don't see how the how the the Eucharist is in continuity with that the Catholic Eucharist, and it, it looks like oh, that's just a bunch of bells and smells and ceremonies, and we don't we don't see the connection. We think it's all just made up. Uh, but this this grows this grows naturally out of the way that god was leading his people you know these devout men these these members of 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 the jewish community members of the old covenant under moses they were in prayer they were meditating on the prophets and, and the spirit was leading them toward okay what what the messiah was actually going to do when he came and and they saw a lot of this and they were getting ready for it and to me, that's just fascinating.
0: Well, that reminds me. I last week on the show, I was talking to Dr. Doug Beaumont and Devin Rose, two converts to Catholic apologists, and uh, the idea of the Eucharist came up, and we circled back to that quote. I think it's from Ignatius. It talks about where the bishop is, there is the church. Right. That's the that's the idea yeah. of. Uh, you know the the priest, the bishop, the person that's been appointed by Christ to to do to celebrate the Eucharist. That's where we can find the Church happening. And this wasn't a, a later invention of the Catholic Church establishing this hierarchy or or something to to tamp down these these rogue Christian churches. This was right away, and this I think you could say grew out of this idea of liturgical celebration the the Essenes were doing and the Jews of the time were doing that then Jesus establishes the Eucharist in much that same kind of framework, right? Yes.
1: Absolutely. Um I mean there was a there was a hierarchical structure uh to the Qumran community that left us the scrolls. Uh it it wasn't some kind of like, you know, Marxist commune or or hippie commune where you know, everybody can just do whatever they want. When you, if you were an ancient Jew and you joined that monastic community, they had three tiers of leadership. I mean, it was basically there's the, the, what we would think of as the laity, you know, just kind of uh, lay members of the community. And then the first level of, of clergy they called the Levites, and then above them was a level of clergy called the priests. And then at the head of the community... Was a man named Amabakar. and if you translate that, it comes out as bishop. You know, and that's so astounding. You know, people think that I'm making that up initially, <laughs> but this is true. You know, they they used a Hebrew word that, if you do the translation, it comes out in Greek as episkopos, and then ultimately in English as a bishop. So you have again this new covenant community gathered together, awaiting the coming of the Messiah and they've got a bishop at their head, uh, and then they've got a rank of priests and then a rank of Levites. And that pattern, you know, ultimately goes back to the way that God's people were organized in the wilderness under Moses with uh, a high priest and then a priesthood and then the Levites and then the rest of the uh, people of Israel. And that's, you know, that is also the, the pattern on which, um, the Christian hierarchy is based with uh, within each local place an episkopos, you know, a bishop, and then the in, in Greek the presbyteroi, which eventually becomes English priests, and then the diaconoi or the deacons. And it's so striking, Keith, because in the very earliest of the fathers, like, say, Clement of Rome, who, who some, some would argue he's the earliest church father uh, after the apostles themselves, and one of the first problems that came up in the early church that had to be solved was the problem of holy orders and like who you know who has the authority and who can celebrate the sacraments and who can't and stuff like that that had to be hammered out right away and in in a passage in one of uh, in his letter to um to the church in corinth um uh pope clement uh the first uh uh, is talking about the the clergy, and he calls them by their Old Testament terminology, he calls them the high priest and the priest and the Levites, but really he's talking about the bishop, uh, the presbytero, or the priests, and uh, the deacons. Um, but he just calls them by their Old Testament name, and what that shows us, Keith, is that the early Christians saw this. They understood that the church was Modeled on the ancient pattern of Israel, and that's also how you know this the the Quran community was was modeled, and it, it didn't take any time at all for early Christians to come up with this. You know, for, first of all, the, the 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 basics of it were laid down by our Lord Himself, and then developed a little bit further by the apostles. But this just made sense because they were devout Jews that you know formed the nucleus of the early church and of course this is how things would be set up this would be you know because the Messiah is going to restore God's people based on these ancient patterns from sacred scripture so yeah uh, that's you know that that was a game changer for me too uh, you know to to understand how deeply rooted that was you know that the idea of bishops priests and deacons this again was not something that was invented superstitiously in the dark ages uh, and then, you know, imp- you know, written back into earlier Christian literature or something like that. This is something that was was already, in a sense, there when Jesus was establishing the church. There was a readily available pattern that made sense to people who were converting from Judaism. And um, yeah, it's it's really remarkable.
0: I guess, uh, I mean, the interesting thing for me, I mean, I know you have a whole book talking about how the Bible made you Catholic. I think for me, so many of these things in the Old Testament are really what drew me to the Catholic Church. You talk about the sacraments. I mean, you look at the Old Testament, you look at, uh, you know, communities like like the Essenes with the Dead Sea Scrolls who understood that God was operating uh, in their time in a very sacramental system, the system of of... Uh, dispensing his graces through actual tangible acts. Like, that is all throughout the Old Testament. And I remember looking around as an evangelical Christian and what community does that kind of thing now? And I found the Catholic Church and the sacramental system that we have here. And then looking at the, the priesthood in a similar way, you look at the Old Testament with a very clear priesthood established by by, by God, um, a, a priestly tribe and the temple and all these different things that priests are meant to do. Uh, and then again, you see uh, the Essenes and their community in a very uh, structured kind of priestly order. And again, I looked around at, well, who has this kind of who traces the authority of their priesthood? Like, who sees this as important to their church? And certainly lots of churches have have priests and have ministers, but it was the Catholic Church that I found that, like, that traced this tradition of a priesthood um, right down from what Christ said. So, I mean— For me, in a lot of respects, it was the Old Testament seeing the connection uh, that Christ didn't just wholesale start a new thing with the new Christian Church, but it's this continuity. And then for me, the Catholic Church, uh, as a convert, I mean, held the best case for that continuity between what God started in salvation history in the Old Testament and then continues today in the New Testament. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it definitely does. And, you know, it, it really makes reading the Bible uh, more uh, lively and relevant because our, the practice of our faith can be traced all the way back into the pages of the sacred history that we read in Scripture. So, um, you know, the, the, the church that, you know, my local parish where I go to worship, I'm being pastored by a guy who had hands laid on him from a man who had hands laid on him from a man who had hands laid on him in a chain going all the way back to the apostles. Okay. And then to Jesus. And then Jesus is the descendant through many generations all the way back to David, the King. All right. He was King of Israel. So, the, you know, if you, if you ask me, you know, your pastor, my pastor happens to be na- you know named Tim Huffman. He is my uh, father Huffman in St. Peter's Church in Steubenville, Ohio, you know. If anybody challenges me and say, where did your pastor, you know, get his authority? I, I could say, hey, m- my pastor is part of a chain of authority that goes back to David, and then we could also push that back, too, and, and, and trace it all the way back to Adam, for that matter. But um, it, it's this continuity between sacred history and even the modern day. Whereas, Keith, before that, you know, as a pastor myself, who gave me authority? Well, you know, some guys laid hands on me, and they had hands laid on them, going back to, I don't know, John Calvin, maybe, in the 1500s. And, and John Calvin just up and, you know, <laughs> appointed himself, you know, guru of mankind or something. I, I never really got a good answer from anybody um, about where uh, Calvin got his authority, but uh, you know, I was in the in the branch of Protestantism that's that's called Calvinism. So you know, and that and that's the case for everybody in Protestantism. If if they look at their leadership, their leadership only goes back so far to maybe the eighteen hundreds, sixteen hundreds, something, like that. and then you find somebody who just up and uh, you know appointed themselves, uh, you know the, the official, uh, I don't know, whatever founder of the true branch of Christianity without being, you know, uh, appointed to that by the previous, uh, generation. And, uh, and that's not really satisfying, you know, it's like, well, you know, who, uh, you know, who, who gave John Wesley, uh, this authority who gave, uh, Luther this authority who gave John Calvin this authority. Um, they basically appointed themselves, and um, so yeah. Uh, but uh, but again, as Catholics, we're, we're in this continuity uh, that goes back into New Testament history and and before that, all the way into the sacred history recorded in the Old Testament, all the way to the, really to the beginning of uh, of, of recorded history in, in the Scripture, and that you know enables us to see that the history of God's people in the scriptures is really our story. You know, you uh Keith Little, me John Bergsma, we are part of a story that uh, the the beginning stages of which is recorded in the book that we call the Bible and and that's that same story of salvation is going on right now in the midst of the coronavirus, <laughs> okay? So, you know, but it's it's all it's all one story, and it's it's going to have a happy ending.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we can be rest assured of that. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> L- listen, I have one more question for you, and then I'm going to let you let readers know where they can go to find out more about uh, what you're up to and, and get a hold of this fantastic book. And my question is this. I wonder what one, I mean, major takeaway. Maybe you've already covered this, but... Uh, maybe not one major takeaway that you'd have from the Dead Sea Scrolls and how they inform or enliven or enlighten our Catholic faith. Like what's the number one thing that you came across, uh, that really helped you to kind of redefine or, or understand better your Catholic faith?
1: Yeah. Sacramental realism. Uh, that's it right there. Uh, Keith, um, the, you know, we we as Catholics, obviously, we believe that God really works through these sacred rituals that we perform as a church. And we're always being criticized by other Christians or, or people from other religions or people of no faith at all that say, oh, that's just superstition, and you guys made it up, you know, uh, sometime in the, that terrible period of time that's called the Dark Ages, you know, or whatever, and um, But, the, you know, somehow that's not authentic, somehow that's not historical, somehow that's not Jewish. Uh, you guys just made up these, uh, you know, pseudo-magical things that you do, etc. And, uh, you know, that can really affect our psychology, and sometimes we, we half-believe, you know, our own critics, and, and we, we, we doubt, you know, the fundamental practices of our faith. But for me, uh, Keith, you know, reading the Dead Sea Scrolls and seeing that that was the direction that a very large segment of Judaism was moving. you know, they were almost there in terms of you know um, uh, celebrating what looked like to us you know sacraments where you know, water washing, meal of bread and wine, you know, uh, sacred ordination. And, and they believe that God was acting through those things. Now, I think they got ahead of themselves, Keith. I don't, I don't think that, you know, the fullness of the truth was there. I don't think the fullness of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on these guys. But they were, you know, kind of, um, you know, running ahead of the pack. Uh, and uh, because, you know, in prayer, you know, they were seeing where, where the Messiah was going to take them. And, uh, but I, you know, obviously as a, as a believer in Jesus, I believe that he, he brought the Holy Spirit. Um, he was the Messiah that they were looking for. And I think many of them converted, honestly. Uh, I think I, probably the majority of the movement eventually, uh, came to receive Jesus as, as their Messiah, uh, because he answered to so much of what they were expecting. But yeah, the, 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 antiquity of the sacraments, once you read the scrolls, you see, no, you know, that that high view of baptism, that high view of Eucharist, the high view of matrimony, the high view of orders that we have just, that we just drink and breathe as Catholics. That really is very Jewish in a way that we didn't anticipate. And it's very ancient. And that is the way that the first Christians thought, you know, that's the way Jesus and the apostles thought this is not something later. All the symbolic stuff, all this, oh, it's just a sign, oh, it's just a symbol, that's actually later. That's actually medieval, okay? That actually starts uh, to to gather some steam a little bit before Luther and then blows up in the Reformation. Um, the ancient Jews, they didn't think, oh, this is just some symbol that, you know, doesn't have any real, you know. Uh, you know, power of God behind it. They didn't think like that. They thought realistically. So, I, I know I, I'm probably rambling a little bit there, but that 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 idea of God's real activity through the sacraments, the Jewishness of that, the antiquity of that, uh, that's the real takeaway from the scrolls uh, for me.
0: <laughs> that's fantastic, and I don't think you're rambling at all. Listen, this has been an absolute treat for me. I think listeners will love this conversation. I've absolutely nerded out here on my side of the conversation so hopefully uh, listeners are enjoying it as much as I have been. Uh, Where can listeners go to find out more about what you've written, what you're doing, where you're speaking, uh, and uh, that kind of stuff?
1: Absolutely. Um, So I have a website um, johnbergsman.com where folks can go. Um, it's hard to spell Bergsma, so uh, easier way to access it is just CatholicBibleTeacher.com, all lowercase. Again, that's CatholicBibleTeacher.com. That will redirect to my website, and um, you know all my audio products, CDs, MP3s. I've got you know hundreds of talks on audio available there, as well as uh, signed copies of my books uh, can be ordered uh, through that website. Um, the book uh, is published by uh, uh, Penguin Random House, and it's available, you know, at, at any major bookseller, including online booksellers, of course, the Amazon, of course. Uh, so it's uh, easy to find uh, a copy. Um, and also uh, on my website, uh, if you search around there, um, it's run by a company called Catholic Productions, who produces my audio media. You can find uh, upcoming events, and uh, they list uh, my speaking. um, And I, you know, get around. Not so much during uh, this epidemic. I've had (laughs) the next several months all canceled on me now, so I'm doing a lot of sitting at home. But uh, when there isn't a worldwide pandemic going on, I do travel quite a bit and speak. (laughs) So, uh, including in Canada, you know, I'll I'll be up in uh, uh, Vancouver. Um, in November uh, speaking to the priests of uh, I believe it's the diocese of either diocese of Vancouver or Victoria I'd have to look, look what's on the schedule there but I'll be out that area Uh, So, yeah, we do get up to the Great White North occasionally, (laughs) and and we always have a good time when we do.
0: (laughs) Well, that sounds fantastic. I'll put a link to your website in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for being here today. I want to say God bless you, God bless your family, stay safe, stay healthy, and thank you so much for being here today. Thank you.
1: Yeah, you're welcome, Keith. Yep, take care now.
0: Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Cordial Catholic Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. John Berksma. It was a really fun conversation to have, and hopefully it was enlightening, enlivening, and we'll have him back again soon for sure. TheCordialCatholic.com for my blog and for show notes. I'm CordialCatholic at gmail.com. If you want to send me a line, I love your emails. Let me know who you are, where you're listening from, why you're listening, and how I can pray for you. Cordial Catholic on Twitter, The Cordial Catholic on Facebook. And please subscribe to, please follow, please leave ratings and reviews for this podcast wherever you can. Ratings and reviews help push this podcast out to new people, to grow the exposure, the fan base of this show, and help to further the mission of evangelization which underpins this whole thing. Please tell a friend, tell one friend, tell two friends about this show, and get them listening too paypal.me slash cordialcatholic for a one-time donation to this show or patreon.com slash cordialcatholic to support this show monthly thank you so much to those already supporting the show and helping to keep this thing going guys i'm praying for you every single day please pray for me too and please come back again next week we'll have more great content thank you so much for the hour of your time thanks for listening and god bless